Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may I've had several Spirit in Action programs on aspects of our prison system over the past year or two, and there's more ahead, including today's guest, James Kilgore, author of Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. And you got that, folks? The Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. James does an excellent job of making the case. And while his research is impeccable and thorough, he also has a bit of inside experience, having served seven years in prison for crimes connected with the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army, back in the 1970s. The point is, James Kilgore knows American penal institutions inside and out and provides persuasive, world-reorienting info about our system in his book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, and by joining us today via Skype from Champaign-Urbana in central Illinois. James, thanks so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's quite a book that you've put together, Understanding Mass Incarceration. If people have been exposed to the idea of the new Jim Crow, certainly I think for me, that was one of the dawning edges of how big this thing really is. In the book, you bring out so many different perspectives and problems and issues and ramifications of this whole building up of our mass incarceration system. We could start with that, but I prefer not to. I actually want to start with a little bit of light. You actually end the book with some hopeful examples about things turning in the right direction. Let's talk a little bit about those first. Let's accept for the moment that incarceration has skyrocketed over the last 30 years or so, gone through the roof. It's gotten worse in so many respects. What would you say that's hopeful about what's happening over the last five years? First is that at the national level, we've seen the number of people incarcerated in prisons and jails take a slight downturn for the first time since the 1970s. During the period of mass incarceration, each and every year the number of people incarcerated went up, so we saw a bit of a downturn in 2009. Secondly, we began to see more and more people paying some attention, including quite conservative people like Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist, to the scale of mass incarceration, both in terms of the human impact and the financial impact in terms of state and local budgets. 
So I think even the fiscal conservatives became quite alarmed at the extent to which this was actually affecting state budgets and financial status. But thirdly, and probably most importantly, in the past year, we've seen a massive awakening to this issue. We've heard the president talk about it. We've heard Hillary Clinton talk about it. We've seen Rand Paul and Cory Booker co-sponsoring legislation. We've seen a whole range of public events sponsored by the Koch brothers of all people dealing with mass incarceration. This has created a new kind of awareness, but I think we need to recognize that awareness is not necessarily the same as change. So this presents a new opportunity, and we'll have to see where it goes from here. And could you mention some of the good statistics that are happening? Well, I think we've seen a few states have sentencing reform, changes to the parole regimes and so forth. So for example, in the latest statistics that just came out from the Bureau of Justice for 2014, Mississippi, surprisingly, reduced its prison population by 14.5%. That's probably the most extraordinary one-year decrease in prison population in recent history. We've also seen the federal prison numbers drop for the first time in the last couple of years, and they've been accelerating over the last three decades as well. So there's a number of places where there's been sentencing reform, there's been the extension of things like jail diversion and so forth, where people are put into substance abuse programs or mental health or drug courts rather than being incarcerated. So there's been quite a proliferation of those. But the most important states for change have been New York and New Jersey. And in particular, New York, since 2000, has reduced the prison population each and every year except for one and has actually closed 11 state prisons, reducing its prison population by about 25%. It's by far the most significant reduction in prison populations of any state. Well, that does sound like good news. So there's good directions coming on. But let's talk a bit about the dirt, the stuff that really needs to be swept up, cleaned up, straightened out. When does this period of mass incarceration start? I think it starts in the early 1980s. A lot of people would say it really is sparked by the war on drugs initiated by Ronald Reagan somewhere around 1982, where he began to really manufacture this climate of fear around drugs and drug dealers. At that time, according to popular opinion polls, drugs wasn't even a major crime, a major social problem on the U.S. political landscape. But Reagan managed to manufacture this through a big media campaign. You know, he sent his first lady, Nancy Reagan, around the country with her slogan, Just Say No to Drugs. Even Michael Jackson did some episode of the Flintstones where he talked about the drug problem. And probably more importantly, the federal government began to pour money into local police forces to build up SWAT squads and drug squads and arm these local squads as if they were ready for war rather than as if they were trying to protect and serve their community. So we saw a big transformation in the approach toward policing and the militarization of policing, which was backed up by huge amounts of funding for law enforcement and ultimately for prison and jail construction. I suppose we always need some kind of issue that can push the people into a fervor to support you in some way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there was a political agenda behind this, which which Michelle Alexander talks about in her book, The New Jim Crow, 
and that is that the civil rights movement in particular, the struggle of black liberation in the 1960s and 70s, had really made overt racism very difficult to bring out into the public eye. But at the same time, those social movements of the 60s and 70s had created a lot of insecurity and instability across the country, largely amongst white middle class and working class populations who felt their kind of way of life was somewhat under threat. And Ronald Reagan played on this as a way of drawing socially conservative Democrats out of that party and, and into becoming the political base for the Republicans. So we saw you know, millions of, as they call them, Reagan Democrats move across the party line and become part of the Republican machine. This war on drugs was part of the, a vehicle to play on their fears of, of change and really also to stigmatize the idea of a black drug dealer that somehow we could use coded words like drug dealer and dope pusher and thug and all of this without specifically saying that we were talking about young black men, but that's exactly who everyone understood the thug, the drug dealer, the dope pusher to be. So there was a whole way in which the racial insecurities, the backlash against the movements of the 1960s and 70s, which I think wasn't only about civil rights, but was about the whole kind of cultural rebellions of youth across the board in the 60s and 70s, which made the socially conservative sector of the population very nervous and very much open to the kind of campaign that Reagan undertook. One of the statistics that I find very interesting is the different arrest rates and penalties for using cocaine or for those caught using crack, the same substance processed differently. How significant was that in terms of who was going into prison? That's a perfect example of how something that appears on the surface to be race neutral, I mean, it's not identified as having any racial overtones, but in reality, we know that African Americans tended to be the biggest users of crack cocaine, and whites tended to be the biggest users of powder cocaine. So at that point, the penalties for powder cocaine were like one one hundredth of the penalties for crack cocaine. So the sentence for one ounce of crack cocaine was going to be the same as the sentence for 100 ounces of powdered cocaine. So that was just really the beginning of a sort of racialized drug war, which took us from uh, about 41,000 people incarcerated in 1980 for drug-related offenses to somewhere around half a million by the year 2000. And we find that roughly half of those incarcerated for drug-related crimes are African-Americans. So it's very racialized in terms of who the war on drugs affected. And how much have the overall numbers of people in prison grown since the early 1980s? Was the U.S. anywhere near typical internationally in terms of incarceration rates back before the period of mass incarceration began? The U.S. was pretty much at the same rate of per capita incarceration as European countries. And in fact, the per capita incarceration rate of the U.S. had really been kind of plateaued for about a half a century. There hadn't been a real big increase in the number of per capita people behind bars. But from 1980, this has just undergone a meteoric rise. It's more than quadrupled from less than half a million to over two million people in prisons and jails at the moment. So now the U.S., with 5% of the world's population, has about 25% of the world's prisoners. Our per capita incarceration rate, if you look at those figures, were about four and a half times 
the incarceration rate of the UK, which is the highest of the industrialized Western European countries, but countries like Japan and Sweden incarcerated about one-tenth of the rate of the United States. And nonetheless, all of those countries have roughly similar crime rates to the U.S. at this time. So same crime rates, but much higher imprisonment rate in the U.S. And again, when we're talking about these statistics, it's not only who's behind bars. We have to take into account those who are on parole or probation or the other ways that they're stuck in the system. Absolutely, because the numbers of people on parole and probation have also you know, more than quadrupled in, during that time. So we now have somewhere near 5 million people who are either on probation or parole. And I should point out as well that the nature of probation and parole has changed dramatically during the era of mass incarceration. At the beginning, in the 1970s, parole agents and probation officers, they were largely thought of as social workers. Their task really was to help people when they came out of prison, help them find housing, help them find jobs, help them try to make the difficult transition from being you know, incarcerated in a prison to living successfully in the community. That role has completely changed. I mean, I did six and a half years in prison. When I came out and my parole agent came to my house for the first time, he was packing a 45 on his hip. He didn't have any advice for me in terms of where I might go to get an ID, to get a job, anything. He just laid down the rules about when I was going to meet him, when I had to do drug tests, and gave me a lot of warnings about not getting into trouble. This is what parole agents have become in the era of mass incarceration. They've become yet another police force. So you often find parole officers cruising around communities in police cars looking for their charges out on the street to see if they're up to no good. But they offer very little by way of support for people who actually do want to try to transition. And of course, you had the advantage when you got out. You had a family. You have people who actually who are going to help support your transition. So many of the people, and actually part of our whole dysfunctional society symptoms, is the breakdown of society. And the prisons make it more difficult for people to maintain that outside support. The calling thing is the thing that drives me crazy. For you to make a call outside is going to cost someone $10, $15 for a few minute calls or whatever. I mean, I've experienced that locally from the local jail. They make it more difficult for people to maintain the family and community connection, which is so crucial. Now, in your case, I think that was a pretty much a no-brainer. For other people, how common is it that people actually come out with support? I think it's, you know, it's the exception rather than the rule. I think we have to recognize that the majority of people who are in prison you know, are well below the average level in terms of employment, in terms of income, in terms of education, in terms of job skills. So even if they do have family support, it's quite likely that the families that they're going to are already financially and emotionally under-resourced and overstressed. So trying to now deal with the transition of somebody who's been away for 10 or 15 years and you're not really sure what they've been doing or how they're going to behave with very limited finances is an extremely challenging and difficult situation. The other part is that 
the laws around parole and probation have changed to make it much more difficult for people coming out on parole. So, for example, in many public housing programs, you're not allowed to live in, in, in those places if you have a felony conviction. So even if your family is living in public housing, you're not allowed to live with them. In many states, Illinois included, if you have a drug conviction, you're not allowed to get food stamps. You're not allowed to get temporary assistance for needy families and a range of other public benefits are out of bounds. And also across the country, we have about almost 6 million people who couldn't vote in the 2012 presidential election because of a felony conviction. So this is part of the reason why some people frame this as a civil rights struggle in the sense that some of the basic conditions of citizenship have been taken away from people on the basis of criminal background. You know, that's one of the things you mentioned in the book that I hadn't been clear about myself, about this fact that you can lose the ability to vote. You can lose some of the rights of citizenship if you've committed a crime or if you're judged guilty of committing a crime. That was very interesting because you can't lose your rights for so many other things. But for that, all of a sudden, you don't get the right to choose who you vote for. That, that's right. I mean, it's, it's happened across the country. I mean, there's in Kentucky, you're really banned effectively for life from voting. In some states, you have to apply for some kind of a dispensation in order to get your voting rights back. But there's only two states in the U.S., that's Maine and Vermont, where you can vote while you're in prison. In most European countries, you can vote when you're in prison. And in fact, in some places, political parties go into prisons to campaign for votes. But in the U.S., this has seemed to just be completely an, an absurd kind of situation. I'm trying to figure out what good reasons there might be for not allowing someone to vote after they've committed a crime or been judged of that. I mean, I think there's two parts to that. I mean, one part is simply that we've had this incredible you know, vilification of the criminal, stigmatizing of people as felons, convicts, you know, these sort of unchanging people of, you know, of dubious moral character that we have to punish for life because really they're not like us. But there's also been a very clear-cut political Republican Party agenda here, and that is that there's an assumption, and it's probably a correct assumption, that the majority of people who have felony convictions, particularly African Americans, are much more likely to be Democrats than Republicans. So in states like Florida, where we've seen you know, massive disenfranchisement, I mean, up to, in some states we have up to 20% of the African American adult population is stricken from the voting rolls. And this has major implications. And if we look back to the Bush v. Gore election, which was decided by a handful of votes in Florida, we found that there was actually thousands of people with felony convictions who were excluded from voting in that election. And had they been allowed to vote, most likely Gore would have won that election. So these things actually have pretty major political implications at the electoral level. When you're talking about something on the order of six million voters, that's a very significant cohort at the national level. And if we break it down by state level, we can find that a lot of elections that hang in the balance, you know, could have been swayed simply by expanding the franchise to include everyone who, you know, has citizenship rather than simply those who have citizenship without a criminal background. And folks, in case you're wondering what we're talking about, I'm speaking with James Kilgore. His recent book is Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. So one of the things that's clear to me, James, is that there has been a change in, I guess, a national change in opinion about what prisons are for. 
I grew up in the late 1960s thinking of prisons acting as a place to correct people's lives, to help them get their lives together so that they can go out. Has the entire structure changed and is it somewhere written down? The purpose is different now? Well, absolutely. The purpose has changed from rehabilitation to punishment. I mean, that's a clear-cut shift, not only in the philosophy behind it, but I think more importantly in terms of the way in which resources are allocated. So, for example, if I go to the last prison that I was in, which is High Desert State Prison in, in Northern California, at that prison we had a workshop to train people to do motor mechanics, we had an institutional kitchen training facility, and we had a nursery where people could be trained in horticulture. And all of those were closed down. They weren't used at all. If we look across the country, we find education programs in prisons have been cut way back. In the 1990s, there was over 350 higher education programs in prisons organized by nearby universities in most cases. And the Clinton administration cut off the Pell Grant scholarships for people who were incarcerated, and virtually all of those closed down. We just have a few dozen of these programs that have managed to survive. Now, there has been a revival of the Pell Grants, and I believe they're going to be reenacted, and, re and some will be reinstated in the coming year. But this has been over 20 years that we've had virtually no higher education in prisons, and all the research shows that anyone who completes a higher education program in prison is far less likely to end up back behind. Bars. So we've seen a tremendous change in the way in which prisons function. At the moment, prisons are, are really warehousing people. In all the yards that I was on, the bulk of the people had very few constructive things to do, very limited access to anything like libraries, and most of their energy was consumed by either you know, intensive exercise routines and watching lots of mindless TV or playing dominoes and card games. Let's talk a little bit about your situation and your perspective. Number one, in the period when you were so-called on the lam, you were in South Africa part of the time. I think Australia was part of the time. And you got to see what systems are running there. And you were able to watch the United States from the outside during that period. Did your gathering of information on what was happening in the U.S. happen during that period or after your own incarceration? I was kind of unaware of the growth of this thing of mass incarceration. And in fact, when I went to prison in 2002, I saw over the course of the next few years, I just saw this endless stream of black, brown, and poor white guys coming through the gates. And I didn't really know exactly what was going on, but I could see that this was something you know, really wrong and really important. But even when I left prison in 2009, I didn't have the term mass incarceration in my head. It wasn't part of the way I looked at things. But I began, as I left prison, I, I became determined to figure out what was going on. So I began to research and write about it. And I also became active in my own community in Champaign County here when the local authorities in 2012 decided that they wanted to build a $20 million extension onto the local jail. A group of us got together and decided to try to fight that. In fact, we're still fighting it. We've slowed them down, but we haven't totally stopped them. We'll see how it turns out. But at the same time, I, you know, I began to look at this system in much more detail and then figure out you know, some of the logic, the political logic, which we've talked a little bit about, but also there, there's a certain economic logic to the prison system in the sense that you know, a lot of people make a lot of money and gain a lot of political power out of it.
I want to remind you, if you've just tuned in, that you're listening to Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find more than 10 years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find the stations which carry our programs. You'll also find a place to post comments, and we love two-way communication. So when you visit please do drop us a comment. There's also a place to donate. That is how this full-time work is funded, and there's a couple of us involved. So please make a donation when you visit. But even more important than that, though, I'd say, is to support your local community radio station. Alternative sources of information are so important, and the airwaves need local community radio. So please, for the alternative news and for the alternative music they provide, support them first of all. My guest again is James Kilgore. He's author of a book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. He committed a crime back in the 1970s, eventually went to prison after a lengthy time abroad. In 2002, he's in prison, got out in 2009. Now, I'm sure people are used to thinking of South Africa, at least in the period of apartheid, as having been racially terribly skewed, and probably fairly they thought of it. I mean, Mandela wasn't the only one to spend a lot of time in prison. So my question is, were they like what we are now like in the U.S. in terms of the racialization of prison? Well, I think there's a big difference. I mean, in the apartheid era, I mean, there really were two separate laws for blacks and whites. So the racial segregation there and the you know racialized nature of prisons and so forth was very formalized, and that's very different from what you know Michelle Alexander calls the colorblind racism of the U.S. at the moment. That is, all of our laws are supposedly race neutral. We don't go out and say, well, we're going to apply this law to black people and this law to white people. We apply the same law to everybody. We just enforce it differently in different parts of the city or amongst different populations. So when it comes to the war on drugs, for example, we talked about the crack cocaine sentencing laws before, but also just in terms of how cities enforce the war on drugs. You know, they send the police into the black communities and they look for drugs there, but they don't send the cops into college dormitories where there's likely to be a much higher concentration of drugs that they leave that alone because that's not where they're fighting the war on drugs. So there's a big difference between, I think, a formalized, legalized system of racial segregation where you have separate courts, separate prisons for black people and white people, and what we have now, which on the surface is not racialized, but the outcomes of it are incredibly racialized. There are a lot of perspectives that I gained by reading Understanding Mass Incarceration, and one of them was I'd always seen the prison system and the immigration system as separate things. But I guess those numbers go together and with the whole rising intolerance to what are called the illegal immigrants, undocumented individuals in this country. Could you talk about the growth of what's happened in that area in terms of immigrants? Well, I think it's all part of this kind of bigger punitive mindset that we've adopted. And I think we're talking about how do we solve social problems? We've come to solve social problems largely through law enforcement 
and, and carceral approaches rather than trying to figure out ways to support people as they make transitions or support people if they have problems of substance abuse, mental health, unemployment, lack of education, and so forth. We've come to punish people for all of these things, including punishing them for their citizenship status. And I think it's interesting if we look at who are the drivers of the immigration detention facilities. If the private prison companies are major players in expanding that system and in lobbying for harsher immigration laws. So when they weren't able to make huge inroads into the prison system, because private prisons really only have about 6% of prisoners held in state and federal facilities, but they have almost 40% of the people held in immigration detention center facilities. So we're seeing that they're applying their prison building model to how we deal with the problem of immigration. So instead of figuring out ways to help people transition to live in the United States and to fit legally into the economy, instead we've adopted a war on immigrants approach, which isn't just about deportation, but it's also about spending hundreds of millions of dollars building a big wall across the border and sending thousands of border police there to patrol and arrest people coming across the border. So it's a whole policing mentality that we apply to a range of social problems. Underlying much of it is a sort of criminalization of poverty. And as we know in the U.S., poor people are disproportionately African-American and Latino. There's something you mentioned in the book, which I hadn't realized. There were private prisons in the United States before mid-1800s. But that was eventually outlawed, and it was outlawed for more than 100 years, and then they started bringing them back. Could you talk a little bit about that history? That blew my mind that we learned our lesson once, but of course, you know, we don't study history so much these days. Well, I mean, in the post-Civil War era, we actually had this thing called convict leasing where companies would hire laborers from prisons. And so this became a whole big business operation whereby the actual local authorities were arresting emancipated enslaved people and then leasing them out to private businesses, farms or companies that were building roads or involved in other kinds of construction and then making money off these people who were incarcerated. So that became such a revolting practice at a certain point that uh, that whole kind of arrangement of making money off of people who are locked up and you know running prisons for profit was outlawed. And it's only in the late 1970s when we start to see the beginnings of a more free market approach to the economy that we begin to see the resurgence of private prisons and also the resurgence of private companies being able to set up labor contracts with people who are incarcerated. One of the aspects that you didn't just mention, I mean, there's so many facets of this that can be analyzed, is what happens in schools. And there's the whole criminalization of school. You know, you're, you're truant from school, so you can end up in jail because of that. I know that at a certain point, they were posting police or guards at schools and the idea was that maybe you're going to have to protect people because weapons might come out. But it, pretty soon it, it turned out that everyone was an inmate. Is there some valid role for having anybody, I guess, with police powers around a school these days? I don't think we should be having police in schools, but it's, in a, it's once again kind of the applying a law enforcement approach to solve a social problem. 
So I think in the 1990s, there was a recognition that there was problems in schools, and in particular, this was sparked by a panic that the U.S. was somehow falling behind internationally in terms of its academic performance. So there became this big panic that we had to restructure education, and a lot of that got tied up with this whole kind of punitive mentality, so the solution to the educational problem became more discipline. So we had the emergence of this kind of zero-tolerance approach in terms of misbehavior in schools. And that zero-tolerance, which is what has been a policing approach to problems in high-crime areas, then got applied to schools. So suddenly we have the legal system being brought in to punish people in schools for doing things that have happened you know, since time immemorial in school. A schoolyard fight, a disagreement with a teacher, being late to school, bunking school. I mean, this is part of the educational environment. And how do you cope with these? I would think that you cope with these by sitting down with these students, sitting down with their families, sitting down with the teachers, that we have you know, even processes which some people talk about like restorative justice and so forth or peace circles where people sit down and really talk through these things and develop collective solutions that can improve the chances of the students. But instead, we've developed a punitive approach where we have thousands of student resource officers that the, and these are disproportionately present in low-income income areas in inner cities, African-American students are much more likely to be suspended or expelled, something like you know, three times more likely to be suspended than white students. We find that they're much more likely to end up in court or in a juvenile justice setting for things that happened inside schools as well. And we have the criminalization of truancy. So at one point, a student in Los Angeles could be fined $250 for being a minute late to class. In Texas, in 2012, 113,000 truancy cases were charged against youth aged 12 to 17, and Dallas County alone collected more than $3 million in truancy fines. And this is mostly coming from poor families who really can't afford to be paying fines for their children being late to school. So it sets up a whole spiral of financial difficulties for these families just because of the malfunctioning of the education system and the decision to solve it through this kind of law enforcement approach. You know, folks, we're only scratching the surface. You'll find an incredible array of examples, of statistics, of analysis in understanding mass incarceration. James Kilgore is our guest and the author of this recent book. I'm kind of at a loss, James, because I know that there's so many things I would really like to bring out, and I really don't think you're doing nearly justice to the riches. You did it in a fairly short book. Let me just try and grab a couple other things. And this one seems pretty important to me. The rate of incarceration seems to have its own life, independent of the number of crimes being committed. But you did mention that New York is one of the places where the rates of incarceration are going down. Is that an effect of decreasing crime rates? Or just what is it that's emptying, to a degree, New York prisons? Well, there's a lot of debate over this because, of course, when there's a success, everyone wants to claim credit for it. The police have largely argued that this has been a result of a sort of scientific hotspot policing approach where they've you know, used these algorithmic formulas and decided where crime is likely to take place and when it's likely to take place, and then they've concentrated all their policing in those areas and that somehow that has stopped the crime. There may be a component of the reduction that's due to that. I think there's also a component of the fact that 
the use of crack cocaine in particular has decreased simply because I think people in communities became aware of the dangers of crack cocaine and actually moved away from, you know, getting caught up in it. But I think probably more importantly and a more important lesson for us who are trying to address the issues of mass incarceration is that there's been a huge movement from the bottom up of community groups which targeted in particular the war on drugs. The Drug Policy Alliance formed a broad-based coalition of, of dozens of groups and did a lot of education about the impact of drug arrests and the ability to deal with drug issues through substance abuse programs and through paths that took people out of the courts. So, for example, just from 2008 to 2012 in New York City, we found a drop in drug arrests from about 40,000 to 30,000, a 25% drop. We also found an overturning of the Rockefeller drug laws, which were the first mandatory minimum drug sentences in the country. And these have been major drivers of putting people in prison for decades for drug offenses. Mandatory minimums means that the judge has no discretion whatsoever to give a person less than a mandatory minimum that's prescribed by law. So people in, in, in New York had like 20 and 30 year minimums for drug possession, even if it was a first offense. So those things have been rolled back and that means that we're getting a lot more people coming out of prison or even people who are being sentenced to prison are getting much shorter sentences. So those are some of the things that are important in terms of dealing with mass incarceration and trying to roll back prison numbers. But once again, I think it all fundamentally comes back to the mindset. If we don't get rid of this punitive mentality, if we don't start becoming a society that's more merciful, more empathetic, more caring, we're not going to significantly attack this problem of mass incarceration. Well, that brings me to one more area. You know, I've had guests over the past 10 years. Uh, there's a local group called Jonah, which has worked a lot on alternatives to imprisonment. And uh, statewide, that group is called Wisdom. It's congregational-based activism. They've been instrumental in terms of drug courts and mental health courts and many other such alternatives. And one area towards the end of the book you talk about is restorative justice and also the idea of transformative justice. Why don't you plant a seed so people will go and read those chapters? What are those about? Yes, I'm, and I'm, I'm quite familiar with the work of Wisdom. I've had some connection with them, and in fact, they even contributed a couple pictures to the book of their wonderful campaigns, particularly dealing with draconian conditions of people on parole. And obviously, they are practitioners and supporters of notions of restorative justice. Now, restorative justice is basically about giving people a second chance. It's about forgiving. How do we respond to what we might call harm? Under the present system, which is based on retribution, if I steal your laptop computer, you're going to call the police, most likely, and the police are going to come, and I'm going to get arrested, and I'm going to get my sentence or whatever. That's the way the system works. In a system of restorative justice, we would develop a process whereby, I mean, I would have to give you that, that laptop back, but we're going to have a discussion, and I'm going to have to accept the responsibility as the person who's done the harm for what the implications of that action are for you. And we're going to have a discussion that's going to try to restore a relationship between us that could have existed before that harm was done. So it's really based on mercy, on forgiveness, on second chances, on communication and building relationships. 
And this works very effectively in neighborhoods and in schools where people may be doing harm to one another and we need processes to intervene rather than calling in the police simply because some the neighbor's playing their stereo too loud or something. But transformative justice takes this a little bit farther, and that is it says, okay, if I steal your laptop, transformative justice is going to examine what are the underlying things in my life that are making me steal that laptop? Do I have a substance abuse problem? Do I have a mental health issue? Do I have not enough money to feed my kids so I'm stealing this to get that money? Transformative justice says you have to change the context in which crime occurs. You have to deal with issues of poverty and inequality, of substance abuse and mental health. You have to change the environment in the communities where people live who are disproportionately being over-policed and over-incarcerated. And until you transform that environment, you're not going to effectively deal with mass incarceration And even if you release people from prison or jail, if you don't provide communities that have opportunities for those people, you're not going to really succeed in the long run in dealing with that condition. I think our real objective is to have a society where we play well together. Some people have, I think that there's objective of some people who want to have all of the game pieces in their pocket. So I realize there's layers and layers of why injustice and how injustice can happen. One of the key things I think about the way I was raised to think about prison was rehabilitation. And I love the line from Alice's Restaurant. He's there for his draft physical and going through all the hoops and stuff there. And he gets to the end and he has to write down about the garbage and getting a ticket for littering. And on the back of the page it says, kid, have you rehabilitated yourself? In your case, it seems so glaringly obvious. You were part of a crime back in the 1970s, and in the decades since then, you've lived as a productive, positive member of society, much of it in South Africa. In fact, when the U.S. wanted to extradite you back here, a number of folks stepped forward to support you, even including Archbishop Desmond Tutu, saying, hey, this is a good guy doing good things for the world. Throwing him in prison would make no sense. But the sensible option lost out, and you were locked up in prison for seven years. Is there any sense in which those seven years in prison accomplished something valuable, were actually productive for you or society, or did the forces that be simply have to have their pound of flesh from you? Well, I think the point really is to try to figure out ways to make that time productive. As I said, the institutions had really scaled back on rehabilitation, but Because I had, I mean, I had a lot of experience as an educator. I was a teacher. I I was actually a director of a college in South Africa. So I tried to take those skills into the prison and make use of that time. I was a teacher's aide. I taught GED math. I I did some workshops on globalization and the the global economy. I helped organize a sign language class with guys who were deaf so they could be able to communicate with other people on the prison yard. And I also tried to develop my writing skills by getting a lot of books taught me how to write fiction. I wasn't a fiction writer before I went to prison. I sort of did a self-study and figured out how to do that and wrote a number of manuscripts. So there is a way that individuals can make use of that time. But I came into that prison with a whole lot of experience 
that enabled me to be able to do that, which most people don't. And as you mentioned, I also had an extremely large amount of political and family support, which enabled me to have some access to resources that most people didn't. So the question of rehabilitation isn't really a personal level question. It's like an institutional level question. I really think we're talking about a, you know, a process of restorative justice, if you like, that in some way begins to accept the fact that mass incarceration is harm. Mass incarceration has done harm at a massive level to communities and disproportionately to poor African-American and Latino communities. And that harm needs to be acknowledged by the harm doers. The harm doers are the people that have set up this system and have been benefiting from this system, and they need to accept responsibility for doing that harm and communicate with the people that they've harmed through this about that and try to find a way to restore or to rectify the harm that's been done. And I mean, I think that's a way in which restorative justice could apply at a systemic level. So we're seeing at the moment, we're seeing a few politicians like Hillary Clinton admit that they made mistakes, but admitting that you make a mistake is different than acknowledging the actual harm that you've been done and saying that you're going to take responsibility to undo that harm in some way. So, for example, in restorative justice, they might say, well, because you've done this harm to somebody, we want you to do community service. So what community service are the people that benefited from the system of mass incarceration for all these years? What community service are they going to do to undo that harm that they've created? This is a whole different way of looking at the problem than simply reforming a few sentencing laws or letting a few people out of prison on clemency petitions. Yeah, there's so much of it. I I do think there's a deep spiritual principle at root here, and but I'm not sure I have the answer for it. One of the things that I'm aware of is jails used to be much, much worse than they are now. Now, that may be hard to say, and maybe at least they had a limited duration. I'm not even sure about that. I read Les Miserables and Jean Valjean, and you know he ends up 20 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread is the story there. You know, that just kind of craziness. But the purpose of jails, and you know I'm Quaker, and Quakers had their role in trying to reform jails, and even some of the worst innovations, uh, solitary confinement, I read in the book, you said that it was Quakers who evidently came up with that idea, time for prayer or something, I don't know. So even the best objectives of why we have prisons have often gone awry. Is there, in your view, and I'm particularly interested in your spiritual view on this, a reason for prisons to exist for anybody? That's one of the most complicated questions of the day, I think. You know, that is why I saved it for last, you know. <laughs> right, right. I subscribe to the idea of prison abolition. And whenever you say prison abolition, you know, people just freak out and say, well, what about Charles Manson and all that sort of thing? I don't think that's the way to look at prison abolition. I think what we're talking about here really is getting rid of the idea of punishment that informs incarceration, because it doesn't simply inform the way we deal with criminal justice. It's informing the way we're dealing with problems in society as a whole. We're criminalizing people that sleep on a park bench. We're criminalizing people that serve food in public places. In some places, we've made laws against anyone living in their car. We're making all kinds of laws that basically outlaw public displays of poverty. And we're building up this idea that those who are poor need to be 
kept out of sight and out of mind. And if policing and jails can do that, then we'll, we'll use policing and jails. If electronic monitoring of people can do that, we'll use that. But the fundamental principle is these people don't deserve to be part of the society as a whole. And so I think prison abolition is trying to say that we have to have a more cooperative society, a more communicative society, and a society that's founded on principles of equality, of forgiveness, of building human relationships. That should be at the center of the way we deal with social problems, not the idea that wrongdoers must be punished and that we must build up fear of those who are you know, different from us, who are poorer than us, who have a different religious tradition than us, whatever, but rather we we have to have a different kind of philosophy behind that. In the immediate situation, to me, what prison abolition means quite clearly is not one more dollar should be spent on building prisons and jails. We have way too many prisons and jails already. It's time we start taking people out of those institutions and start taking the money that's being spent on them into the communities where the harm has been done. That's the fundamental way in which people who are involved in prison abolition are operating now. We're trying to decarcerate, we're trying to dismantle this system, and no matter what proposal someone comes with about having a, you know, a gender-sensitive jail, a family-friendly detention center, all of these things are just smoke screens for more locking people up. We have to get people out of those prisons, back into communities, and finding ways for them to get opportunities to succeed. And that's really the fundamental principle, and it's, it's a huge undertaking both at a philosophical level and at a practical level, but it's not going to be solved by tweaking the system or by very small reforms. And the one question I'm still wondering about, and I, certainly you've had your own experience with the system. You've seen things in different countries. You've lived other places long enough to have an idea. You can see the aberrant mentality that's going on in the United States about prisons. What spiritual principles are driving what you just said about abolition of prisons? Where does that come from? Where do you see that better way of a society operating? Well, I think different people bring different traditions to those ideas. I'm not a specifically religious person, but I think the spirituality that I encountered in Southern Africa touched me in a certain way. It was a holistic kind of spirituality that connected people to one another, and it also connected people to, you know, to the land and the resources of the environment that surrounded them. And there's a philosophical tradition that people in South Africa call Ubuntu, which translates roughly as humanism, and it comes from a Zulu proverb which says, a little bit of Zulu for your audience, but which means a person is a person because of other people. And that is, you know, that whole notion of collectivity that we're all in this together and that we have to solve the problems together. And I think one example of this in South Africa was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which held public hearings across the country in which the perpetrators of violence police who had killed, you know, young community activists and so forth, they came in front of these tribunals and they had to confront the families and the individuals that they had harmed. This was a public speak out about these issues, an acknowledgement of the harm that was done. And the people that were being sort of accused, if you like, 
were given dispensation, were given forgiveness if they acknowledged and accepted responsibility for what they had done. And I mean, this was done across the country. It was an incredible process, and it acknowledged the pain of the people who had been harmed, and it gave them power to voice their experience and gave validity to their experience. Now, it didn't solve all the problems. We still have huge problems of inequality in South Africa, and that's a whole other level which I think will be a problem here in terms of how do we reallocate resources in a more equitable way. But the first step here is acknowledging the harm that's been done and getting the people who are responsible to take some responsibility for that. And I think that here is going to be very difficult to get politicians and corporation CEOs to step up and say, wow, was I wrong? Please forgive me. I should have never voted for this bill that ended up incarcerating your son for 35 years. That's a very big step, and we're not there yet by any means. And people don't very often give up power and privilege voluntarily. It's usually a long road. And the way I read what Jesus said, we need to do that. But uh, a lot of people who count themselves fervent followers of Jesus or, or other religious leaders don't seem to find that as a compelling direction. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's a little self-interest tied up there. but Sure. By the way, I want to mention to you, James, that proverb, you know, or that saying, a person is a person because of other people. On my program, I think maybe it was six weeks ago, I had on Eileen Flanagan, who was a Peace Corps volunteer down in that area of Africa. And it was one of the things that so compelled her to live her life differently. So you're not the first one to mention it on my show. Uh-huh. And I, and I think one thing just to add on to that is that in Southern Africa, at least during the you know, 1980s and 90s, people interpreted that to mean that we have to organize collectively to solve our problems. It's not simply a spiritual principle, but it's also a mandate to come together and form an organization that can effectively express our political will and advance that. And I think the point that you're just making is that people in power are not going to give it up unless there's a counter political force that's speaking out and and forcing them to confront the implications of their actions. And I think in this case, we're going to need large-scale social movement of the scale of the civil rights and anti-war movements of the 60s and 70s. It's going to have to have a significant participation by people from the communities that have been directly impacted by this in order to be successful. That would be a hopeful vision of the future. Folks, we've been speaking with James Kilgore, author of Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. Really, folks, this is an impressive, multifaceted look at a wealth of the aspects of the outrageous prison complex we've developed in this country. And you did it, James, in only 234 pages. Thanks for helping me and other folks get a comprehensive grip on an enormous issue. And thank you for joining us here today for Spirit in Action. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been a great discussion. I really appreciate you having me on. Find James Kilgore's book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, in all the usual places. But you could start with a link to The New Press on our northernspiritradio.org site. There are, as you may have anticipated, valuable bonus excerpts on our site that we just couldn't fit into this broadcast. So educate and enrich yourself further by checking those out and posting a comment when you visit northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action.
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.